This podcast is brought to you by BrunerAcademy.com, your online resource for the best public speaking, presentation, storytelling skills courses. Become a rock star communicator in any setting. Visit BrunerAcademy.com. My guest has transformed his life many times, from nationally ranked competitive Canadian figure skater to lead roles on more than 50 television shows, including Mad Men, ER, The West Wing, Prison Break, just to name a few, to now making his award-winning directorial feature film debut. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about today with Troy Ruptash. Troy, welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you here as well. Your feature film, They Who Surround Us, is an incredibly powerful movie in which you not only wrote the screenplay, you directed and produced this movie, and you played the lead on top of all of that. (laughs) You won numerous (laughs) awards for Best Feature from three different film festivals. Congratulations. How does all of that feel for your first foray as a feature film director? Sometimes I find myself still pinching myself that this happened because it happened relatively quickly. And I remember having a conversation with someone four years ago, probably saying, oh, I wish I could become a director, but how am I going to do it at this point in my life? You know, I've been acting for so many years, but most people who direct start early on. And the fact that I'm now here talking to you about a feature film that I made and directed and produced, played the lead in, and it's just remarkable, and I'm so grateful. Well, it is <laughs> remarkable, but, but how challenging is it to have all of that responsibility as the writer, the director, the producer, and let's not f- forget the lead actor in the, in the movie? <laughs> you know, the fascinating thing about it was, especially first in terms of playing the lead with having to do everything else, it was probably one of my favorite performances and the process of filming that role because I had so many other things to think about (laughs) that I became a lot less precious with my performance. And I think it served me well, yeah, Yeah. because I had so much else to think about that I kind of left myself alone. That's so interesting. Yeah. So it was really wonderful. And in terms of, you know, writing it, After all these years of, you know, I've worked on some wonderful TV shows and films, and I'm grateful for that and will continue to do that. But I've always wanted to tell my own story. So Mm -hmm. to have the opportunity to be that much in control of everything, (laughs) I learned I like to control things. Oh, well, that's good. (laughs) You didn't know that about yourself, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, while this movie has been playing in Canada, which is your home country, hopefully it'll be available in the United States soon. I know you're working on that. Yes. Thanks to you giving me advanced screening, I watched it last night, and it is so beautifully written, so beautifully acted, and what I loved hearing you just say a moment ago was you kind of just let that be, and it becomes this very poignant story, a very personal story, that is based on your own Ukrainian ancestors. Share us a little bit about the storyline. It started with a photograph of my great uncle that I was fascinated with. We had always known that he, as far as we knew, had died in his prison camp in Siberia. You know, I had this photograph of him and then all my other ancestors that I I was so moved by and so desperate to find out more about them. So I began research. Through the research, found out that my great uncle had not only gotten out of prison, 
and Siberia, but he became a commander with UPA, which is the partisan army in Ukraine. I was just like, oh my God, that has to be the centerpiece of the film. So that would have been, you know, 1942, 43. So I knew if I wanted to play a character in the film, I wanted to set it in 1987 because I wanted it to be about a boy who fled Ukraine and was now living in Alberta. And it all came about through some creative dream work that I do with a woman by the name of Kim Gillingham. And Hmm. that was a game changer for me. Wow. Well, the movie is, it's deep. It's about Mm -hmm. grief and trauma that we carry with us, sometimes without even realizing we're carrying it with us. Why was it important for you to tackle this type of a topic, which is, is not easy? You know, I have struggled with grief, felt very alone with my grief, even though I have a wonderful support system and family. And, but there was a part of it that I felt so alone with. And I thought, I'm a creative person. And I wanted to somehow convey grief in a way that would allow other people to hopefully have the experience of dropping into and accepting and tolerating their own grief. I was very conscious about the way I shot the film, the space and the quietness I wanted in the film. And I'm Mm -hmm. so grateful that I was able to do it because sometimes that silence makes people uncomfortable. Yes. I really wanted to allow people to experience Roman's grief, the lead character, Mm -hmm. and portray it in a way that would allow them to connect with any grief that they may have in their life. I know from sharing it with people and going to screenings and being able to talk to people after screenings at festivals and such that that really has happened. And that probably has been the most rewarding thing of this whole process, the stories that people have told me. And you even said that creating this film, the process of researching it and writing it saved your life. I believe that fully because actually I've struggled with depression and anxiety for a big part of my life, I went through a, a really bad period about eight or nine months before I began researching my ancestors and my Ukrainian heritage. It got to the point where I couldn't even leave my house. I was so riddled with panic and fear and anxiety. And I knew that I wanted to return home. And I didn't even know what that meant because... I was home, as far as I was concerned, my house in Los Angeles with my <laughs> husband and our two dogs. And, but I knew I wanted to go back to my parents and spend some time with them and talk about their history. And it was that process that began my healing and a, a type of healing that I've never experienced before. And it led to me going to Ukraine and feeling a sense of belonging like I never thought was possible. So. Mm. What does the title, They Who Surround Us, mean? It's so interesting because, like I said, I I developed this through the creative dream work I did with Kim Gillingham. And I started with bringing images into the workshops of my ancestors. And then I started painting my ancestors. And then you start paying attention to the dreams that come to you during the night. And you journal about them first thing in the morning or in the middle of the night. I was home with my parents, sleeping in my old bedroom that I grew up in. You know. <laughs> I didn't even know what the story was yet. I just had an image of a farmer who heard a voice coming from the woods singing a lullaby. And then I woke up one morning and 
I just heard they who surround us. Mm-hmm. Like those words popped into my into my head, and I thought, yeah. that's the title of the film. I don't know what the film is, but <laughs> that's the title. I just knew it in my bones, and you know, and that sort of evolved into all those people, whether they're still present, physically present or not, and even our natural surroundings and everything that surrounds us, seen or unseen, that enables us to get through, you know, really difficult times in our life. Mm. I'm now, when you're talking about that, I'm remembering the last, last scenes of the movie where everyone's in silhouette and I'm like, they who surround us. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. (laughs) There were two images that came to me before I knew what the story was too. And one was the very first image in the movie mm-hmm. with a woman running with a baby holding the hand of her other child. And the crucifix in her hand. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And then the image, I had the image of the silhouette image at the end of the film that came to me. And I mm. wrote that down. So I had like the opening image and the final image of the film before I even knew what the film was. So again, The process of writing this was so extraordinary. Yeah. What made you decide to become a director? Because you've been on stage, you've been a screen actor for decades, you've done some stage directing, but Mm -hmm. a feature film? That's biting off a lot. (laughs) It is. And you know, I'm so happy to have the opportunity to speak with you about it because hopefully there'll be people out there who may be in the same situation I was years ago, which was that I kind of knew for many years what my real dream was, but I, I kind of stayed around it. I did, you know, circling it rather than going for it. Oh, interesting. Because I'm a painter, I'm very visual, and I knew when I directed stage that I had a sense for the way that, oh, wow, this is using everything I know about composition and, and light and And if it feels this good on stage, you know, film is such a visual medium. I thought, if I'm really going to live my purpose, I have to somehow direct a movie. And I don't know how that's going to happen because, yes, I have a a great resume as an actor. But for me to go to someone and say, I want to direct a movie, normally they'd be like, well, what else have you done? (laughs) Yeah, what else have you done? (laughs) I feel like from the moment I made the decision, After looking at that picture of my great uncle and starting to talk to my family and doing the research, one of these days I'd love to write a book about all the miracles that happened, the miraculous things that unfolded that felt like things just aligned. Like I feel like this film was just meant to be and I don't even feel ownership of it in some ways. I feel like I just facilitated a process. I facilitated Mm. the telling of a story that wanted to be told. I'm so fortunate and grateful that I I happen to be the one who said yes. <laughs> well, it's it's a wonderful film. And okay, so let's talk about your TV and stage career a little bit. I mentioned sure. some of the shows that you've been a guest on or had a lead role in, ER, mm-hmm. The West Wing. And let's talk about your role in the iconic drama Mad Men. <laughs> Let us yes. in on that little secret, because I wonder if people know your part in this. I know. You know what's so great about that? I still, to this day, get calls from people who, you know, because Mad Men came out a while ago now, but people sometimes don't watch it until years later. And when they watch the first season, you know, there's a big spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. But the lead character played by John Hamm is, his name is Don Draper. What you find out by the end of the first season is that he is not actually Don Draper. 
but I am. <laughs> I play <laughs> Lieutenant Donald Draper. We're in the Korean War together, and he steals my identity. It's kind of a cool project to have that to say that I'm the real Don Draper is a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Well, you've played so many roles on so many different shows. Do you have a favorite role? And if so, who and why? Probably one of the roles that I really loved was a character named Wyeth in a film called Dig Two Graves. And it's like, it's a gothic thriller. I, I get to play a lot of characters that are very different from who I essentially am. Thank goodness. I mean, <laughs> I play a lot of dark characters and those, especially in, in the TV and film world before I started writing my own stuff. But he's sort of, he lives with his brothers. There are three moonshiners who are kind of backwoods, dark, and kind of involved in the little sort of magic. And they kind of like parallel the three witches in Macbeth and it was a fascinating role to play. And hmm. so that's definitely one that, you know, sticks out in your out mind. In yeah. 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 Before you became such a well-known actor in the United States, Europe and Canada, you were a competitive, award-winning, nationally ranked figure skater from about yes. the age of nine until your late teenage years. And then you quit. What happened? I did, and I often say that when I quit skating, it was sort of the beginning of my acting career, because for those of you who have watched competitive figure skating on TV, there's the five-minute warm-up that happens that they show that is televised before the actual skaters begin to compete and, and you know, skate the programs. And it was the five-minute warm-up for the long program. Oh, I notice I still get a little shaky talking about it after all these years. That's yeah. what's so amazing about this stuff. I just could not deal with the pressure that was happening. And I faked an injury during the five-minute warm-up before my long program. It was at the national competition. The year before, I had placed third in Canada, and I was like moving up in the ranks, and I was now competing as a junior man, and I had started that competition off in third. And if I stayed in the top three, it was probably likely I might be named to an international team for the first time and go to the junior worlds and all of this. And it was too much. And, you know, there's another end of the story too, in terms of being outed as a young gay man and, and what that did to me. And uh, so I, yeah, I quit in the middle of a, the five minute warm up, and I never went back. Wow. Yeah. Well, for a time, you sort of did keep your feet in the skating world, if I may say that, by teaching adults mm -hmm. how to ice skate. How did that help you heal and grow from the trauma of being outed, but also knowing that you kind of made the decision emotionally, I'm, I'm not going to go forward in this world? I was a young kid when I was outed, and it was just, it was really a very difficult time, and I just wanted to disappear from the skating world, and I did for probably close to a decade. And then I was living in New York. I had finished theater school and I knew I needed to make some money. And I thought rather than waiting tables, which is great, but I have this skill to teach skating. And I started sort of revisiting the skating world and I would watch it on TV again. And I decided I was going to teach skating, but I knew that I did not want to enter into the high-stakes competitive world of figure skating. And so what happened, which was so remarkable and I'm so grateful for, you know, I had a lot of adult skaters 
people who had always either wanted to skate as a child and never had the opportunity or had skated and then stopped and always wanted to return, but thought, oh, I can't return to skating at 40 or 50 or whatever it may be. I got to work with these skaters. It was remarkable because that was when I discovered that at heart, I'm also, and at my core, I'm a teacher. Mm. And I love to facilitate other people's healing. Most of the people who came to me to skate did have some sort of like either intense fear around pursuing something like this. But then I got to see it shift to like the joy that comes from sure. when you are able to sort of embrace something like that. And it was remarkable. So skating and then some acting and some dancing for a time in Toronto. How did you go from that to landing your first TV acting gig, which, by the way, was the first season of Law and Order. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Let's yeah. just remind uh, our listeners. Yeah, you know, I was at Ryerson Theater School in Toronto, but I knew I wanted to get to New York. That was sort of always my dream. And again, I do notice that about myself, that I'm someone that even though I have been riddled with fear at times, I am willing to step into the fear. And I have had people who would say that to me in the past, and I didn't really understand it at the time. But in hindsight, I really see that. And I knew that I wanted to get to New York because I knew I wanted to be on stage in New York. And I decided I was going to get myself to New York. I went to a theater school there. I started training at independent private studios. And I did a showcase where a casting director saw me liked what she saw and she introduced me to a very powerful agent and he started sending me out. Suddenly I was like auditioning for Law and Order and I booked it and I find myself on the set. It was actually the only show that shot in New York. It's a much different scene there now, but yeah, it was the first season of Law and Order and I was on it. It was the beginning of my TV career. Oh yeah, so much fun. Well, besides continuing to spread the word about this movie, continuing your acting, what other projects are you working on and where can we see you next on TV? <laughs> Things pop up all the time on TV and then I definitely have stuff on Netflix. The best way is to go to my IMDB page, which is the Internet Movie Database. You can just put in my name and all of my credits come up and then you can see if what's playing this week on TV or what's on Amazon or And Netflix it's a long or... list, I might add. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. a very long list. <laughs> it is kind of a long list, yeah. But right now my attention is still on they who surround us in terms of, you know, we've got some great momentum going. I'm waiting. I just finished a campaign for the Canadian Academy Awards and we're, the nominations will be announced. Ooh. On February 15th. Oh, so I'm crossing my fingers that we'll get some nominations. So, and I'm also working on, you know, selling the film in the U.S. and all the other territories throughout the world. But what I'm really excited about is an anthology TV series that I've created called Deviant. And this came about, as you know, because you've seen the film, part of They Who Surround Us is set in the 40s. And I became fascinated by the 40s and knew I wanted to tell some kind of crime story. So I was researching crimes in the 40s in Alberta, which is where I grew up, and kept finding different things, but then knew I wanted to keep digging. And then came across an academic paper called The Edmonton Same-Sex Trials. And I thought, what is this? And I found out that in 1942, there was one of the largest dragnet operations targeting gay men in Edmonton, where 10 men were prosecuted and six ended up serving extended prison terms, up to three years. 
And so I thought, oh my God, I can't believe this happened where I grew up. I've never known anything about it. I started working with an archivist at the provincial archives, and I've got all the court transcripts. And it's just fascinating storytelling and mm. important storytelling, I think. So I've developed this anthology series that starts in the 40s with the Edmonton same-sex trials. It's a true crime anthology series scripted. Each season moves a decade forward with another criminal case dealing with the persecution of the LGBTQ plus community. So I'm very passionate about it. I just signed, well, I'm actually not supposed to say yet. So there's some, <laughs> I, ooh, good thing I caught myself. But there's, there's some good things in the works. <laughs> there's some good things in the works. It's, it's moving forward. And uh, I'm very excited about that. Good for you. Well, folks, I don't know when we're going to get to see this movie in the United States, but I want you to pay attention and be on the lookout for it. It is called They Who Surround Us. And you can learn more about Troy's movie by going to theywhosurroundusmovie.com. That's theywhosurroundusmovie.com. You can also catch a trailer on that website as well. Troy, thank you so much for sharing your poignant story with us in your movie. And again, on this episode, congratulations on your success thus far. And no doubt, I believe there's going to be more to come for you in the future. Thank you so much. Oh, Liz, thank you so much. I'm so glad we connected. It's really been an honor. Thank you. And may Troy's story also offer healing to many of you. I thank you for listening in. I invite you to subscribe, share this episode with others, anyone you feel may also be healed by it. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.